old as in Japan, and it's way better than subprime was. The timing is less certain, but the payoff is multiples of what the subprime market was. I believe the world's stress point is Japan. And it's about the cheapest it's ever been right now meaning to buy a kind of insurance policy. TR, yes, and what is it costing you? KB, well, the two things to take into account for the options pricing model are, one, the risk-free rate, and the two, volatility of the underlying asset. So imagine if the turkey used this theory. If he were gauging his risk of being killed based upon the historical volatility of his life, it would be zero risk. TR, right. KB, until Thanksgiving Day. Day. TR, until it's too late. KB, when you think about Japan, there's been 10 years of suppressed prices and subdued volatility. The volatility is mid-single digits. It's as low as any asset class in the world. The risk-free rate is one-tenth of one percent. So when you ask the price on an option, the formula basically tells you it should be free. TR, right. KB, so if the Japanese bonds move up 150 basis points to 200 basis points, 1.5% to 2%, it's over. The whole system detonates, in my opinion. TR, wow. KB, but my theory is, I have always said to our investors, if it moves 200 basis points, it's going to move 1500. TR, right. KB, it's either going to sit still and do nothing, or it's going to blow apart. TR, this all plays into your idea of tail risk. Tell me what tail risk is, not many investors focus on it. KB, if you look at what I'm doing, I'm spending 3 or 4 basis points a year on Japan. That's 4 hundredths of 1%, okay? If I'm right about the binary nature of the potential outcome of the situation there, these bonds are going to trade at 20% yields or higher. So I'm paying 4 tenths of 1% for an option that could be worth 2,000%. Tony, there has never been a more missed price option that's existed in the world's history. Now, that's my opinion. I could be wrong. So far I am, by the way. TR, you're wrong on timing. KB, I'll tell you what. I can be wrong for 10 years, and if I'm right 10 years from now, it was still 100% odds on that to be there before it happened. And people say to me, how you can bet on that because it's never happened before. And I say, well, how can you be a prudent fiduciary if I give you the scenario I just laid out and not do this? Forget whether you think I'm right or wrong. When I show you the cost, how do you not do that? If your home is in an area that is prone to fire, and 200 years ago there was a big fire that wiped everything out, how do you not pay for homeowner's insurance? TR, got it, that's awesome. So let me ask you this, do you consider yourself to be a significant risk taker? KB, no. TR, I didn't think so, that's why I asked. Why do you say you're not a risk taker? KB, let me rephrase that. Significant risk taker means we can lose all of our money. I never set myself up for the knockout punch. TR, tell me this, if you could not pass on any of your money to your children, but you can only pass on a portfolio and a set of rules, what would that look like for your kids? KB, I'd give them a couple hundred million dollars worth of nickels because then they wouldn't have to worry about anything. TR, they're done, their investment portfolio is done. Oh my god, that's wild. What gives you the most joy in life? KB, KB, I have my kids. TR, that's awesome. KB, a hundred percent. TR, Kyle, thank you. I so enjoyed this, and I learned a lot. Chapter 6.10 Mark Faber, the billionaire they call Dr. Doom. Director of Mark Faber Limited, Publisher of Gloom, Boom and Doom Report The fact that Mark Faber's investment newsletter is called the Gloom, Boom and Doom Report should give you a hint about his outlook on markets. But this Swiss billionaire isn't your average bear. Mark, who's been a friend of mine for many years, 
is a colorful, outspoken contrarian who follows the advice of the 18th century investor Baron Rothschild, the best time to buy is when there's blood in the streets. And like Sir John Templeton, he hunts for bargains that everybody else ignores or avoids. That's why, while so many are focused on the US stock market, Mark Faber looks almost exclusively to Asia for his growth investments. He's also a blunt critic of all central banks, particularly the US Federal Reserve, which he blames for destabilizing the world's economy by flooding it with trillions of dollars, virtually printed out of thin air. Mark has earned the nickname Dr. Doom by continually predicting that the most popular assets are overpriced and headed for collapse. As the Sunday Times of London wrote, Mark Faber says the things nobody wants to hear. But he's often been right, especially in 1987, when he made a huge fortune anticipating the US stock market crash. Faber's father was an orthopedic surgeon and his mother came from a family of Swiss hoteliers. He earned a PhD in economics at the University of Zurich and started his financial career with the global investment firm White Weld and Company. By 1973, he had transferred to Asia and never looked back. From his office in Hong Kong and his villa in Chiang Mai, Thailand, Mark has had a front-row seat to the incredible transformation of China from a communist quagmire to the growth engine that drives the whole region. He's now considered one of the leading experts in Asian markets. Mark is known for his eccentricity he gleefully acknowledges his reputation as a connoisseur of the world's nightlife and is a popular speaker at financial forums and on cable news shows. He's a member of the prestigious Barron's Roundtable, where, according to independent observers, his recommendations have had the highest returns, almost 23% per annum, for 12 years in a row. Mark is also the author of several books on Asia and the director of Mark Faber Limited, a Hong Kong-based advisory and investment fund. Mark speaks English with a gravelly Swiss accent and never takes himself too seriously. Here's an excerpt from my onstage interview with him at my Sun Valley Economic Conference in 2014. TR, what would you say are the three biggest investment lies that are still promoted in the world today? MF, well, I think everything is a lie. It's always very simple. But, I mean, look, I've met a lot of very honest people and so forth, but unfortunately, in your lifetime, you will come across more salesman-type financial advisors. You should really have people that are very honest. But I can tell you this from experience, everybody will always sell your dream investments, and my experience has been, being the chairman of many different investment funds, usually the clients make very little money. But the managers of the fund and the promoters, they all walk away with a lot of money. All of them. TR, where should investors turn? MF, there are different theories in the investment world. There are essentially the efficient market theory proponents. They say that markets are efficient. In other words, when you invest, the best is just to buy an index. And the individual sele selection of securities is basically useless. But I can tell you, I know many fund managers that have actually significantly outperformed the markets over time, significantly. I believe that some people have some skills at analyzing companies because they're either good accountants or they have skills. TR, what do you think of the markets these days? MF, I think there's still risk in the emerging world, and it's still too early to buy their currencies and stocks, and it's too late to buy the US. I don't want to buy the S&P index after it reaches 1,800. I don't see any value. So best is to go drinking and dancing and do nothing. Do you understand? It was Jesse Livermore, a famous early 20th century trader who said, the most money made is by doing nothing, sitting tight. Sitting tight means you have cash. In your life, the important thing is not to lose money. If you don't see really good opportunities, why take big risks? Some great opportunities will occur every three, four, or five years, and then you want to have money. There was a huge opportunity in US housing prices at the end of 2011. Actually, I wrote about this. I went to Atlanta to look at homes and then Phoenix. I don't want to live there, but there was an opportunity. 
But the opportunity closed very quickly, and the individuals were at a disadvantage because the hedge funds came in with cash, the private equity guys, they just bought thousands of homes away. TR, do you see deflation or inflation coming? MF, the inflation-deflation debate is misplaced, in my view, in the sense that inflation should be defined as an increase in the quantity of money. If the money in circulation increases, as a result credit increases, we have monetary inflation. This is the important point, monetary inflation. Then we have the symptoms of this monetary inflation, and these symptoms can be very diverse. It can be an increase in consumer prices, it can be an increase in wages, but again, it's not as simple as that because in the US, we have, in many sectors actually, a decline in wages in real terms over the last 20 or 30 years already, inflation adjusted. But what about the wages in Vietnam and in China? In China, wages have been going up at the rate of something like 20% or 25% per annum, and also elsewhere in emerging economies. So to answer your question, in a system, we can have deflation in certain things, and assets and goods and prices, and even services, and inflation in others. It's very seldom that in the world everything will go up in price at the same rate or everything will collapse in price at the same rate. Usually, if you especially have a fiat currency system, those who can print money, and what you will have is the money doesn't really disappear. It just goes into something else. What can disappear is credit that's why you could have an overall price level that would be declining. But for us investors, we essentially want to know which prices will go up. Like, is the price of oil going to go up or down? Because if it goes up, then maybe I want to own some oil shares, and if it goes down, I may want to own something else. TR, what would you suggest would be the asset allocation to take advantage of in the environment we're in right now and to protect yourself? MF, well, my asset allocation used to be 25% shares, stocks, 25% gold, 25% cash and bonds, and 25% real estate. Now I have reduced my stock positions as a percentage of the total assets. I have more cash than I would normally have. I increased the real estate in Vietnam, and I increased the equity portfolio in Vietnam. TR, so what might that look like today then, percentage-wise? percentage-wise, out of curiosity. Meth, well, I mean, it's difficult to tell because it's so big. TR, are you talking about portfolio or something else? MF, laughs. No, the thing is this, I don't know. I mean, I'm not counting everything every day. TR, well, what would it look like roughly? MF, roughly, I think bonds and cash would be now something like 30%, 35%. And then stocks maybe 20%, then real estate, I don't know, 30%, and gold 25%. It's more than 100%, but who cares? I'm the US Treasury. TR, we know why you like cash. What about bonds, when many people are afraid they're at the lowest level they can be? MF, the bonds I traditionally hold are emerging market bonds. The corporate bonds are also mostly in dollars and euros. But I want to explain this very clearly. These emerging market bonds have a very high equity character. If the stock markets go down, the value of these bonds also decline. Like in 2008, they tumbled like junk bonds. So they're more like equities than treasuries. I own some of these. That's why when I say I have a low equity exposure of 20%, my equity exposure through these bonds is probably more than 20%, maybe 30%. I think sometimes as an investor, we make a mistake that we have too much confidence in our view because my view is irrelevant for the whole marketplace, do you understand? The market will move independently of my view, so I may not be optimistic about treasuries, but I could see a condition under which treasuries would actually be quite a good investment even for a few years. You will only earn your 2.5% or 3%. But that may be a higher return in a world where asset prices go down. Do you understand? If the stock market goes down for the next three years by, say, 5% per annum or 10% per annum, and you have this yield of 2.5% to 3%, then you'll be the king. 
TR, what about other asset classes? MF, there's a lot of speculation for high-end real estate. High-end real estate is at an incredibly inflated level. I believe all these inflated levels I'm not saying they can't go any higher, but I am suggesting that one day they'll come down meaningfully. And that in that condition, you want to have something that is a hedge. TR, you have a quarter of your assets in gold. Why? MF, actually, what is interesting is when I told this to audiences before 2011, when prices started dropping, people said, Mark, if you're so positive about gold, why would you only have 25% of your money in gold? I said, well, maybe I'm wrong, and I want to be diversified, because the gold price has already had a big move and is due for consolidation. Gold is probably to some extent a hedge, but not a perfect hedge, in an asset deflation scenario, if you have it in physical form. But it's probably a better investment than a lot of other illiquid assets. It will probably also go down in price, but less than other stuff. Treasury bonds, for a few years at least, should do okay in a deflation scenario for asset prices at least until the government goes bankrupt. TR, last question. If you couldn't pass on money to your kids, only a set of principles to build a portfolio, what would they be? F, I think the most important lesson I would give a child or anyone is, it's not important what you buy, it's the price at which you pay for something. You have to be very careful about buying things at a high price. Because then they drop and you're discouraged. You have to keep cool and have money when your neighbors and everybody else is depressed. You don't want to have money when everybody else has money because then everybody else also competes for assets and they are expensive. Expensive. I would also say, look, I personally think we have in general no clue about what will happen in 5 or 10 minutes time, let alone in a year's time or 10 years time. We can make certain assumptions and sometimes they look fine and sometimes they're bad and so forth but we really don't know for sure. That's why as an investor, I would say you should be diversified. Now, not every investor can do that because some investors, they invest in their own business. If I have a business like I'm Bill Gates, then I put all my money in Microsoft, and that was, for a while at least, a very good investment. Probably for most people, the best is to have their own business, and to invest in something where they have a special edge compared with the rest of the market, where they have an insider's knowledge. That's what I would do. Or give money to a portfolio manager. If you're very lucky, he will not lose your money, but you have to be very lucky. Chapter 6.11 Charles Schwab, talking to Chuck, the people's broker. Founder and chairman of Charles Schwab Corporation. You've seen the ads, a handsome, white-haired man looks directly at you through the camera and urges you to own your tomorrow. Or maybe you remember the ones where cartoon people ask questions about their investments and a balloon pops up encouraging them to talk to Chuck. That's the style of personal engagement and openness that's kept Charles Schwab at the pinnacle of the discount brokerage industry for the past 40 years and has helped build a financial empire with $2.38 trillion in client assets under management, 9.3 million brokerage accounts, 1.4 million corporate retirement plan participants, 956,000 banking accounts, and a network serving 7,000 registered investment advisors. Before Chuck Schwab came along, if you wanted to buy some stocks, you had to go through a cartel of traditional brokers or brokerage firms that charged exorbitant fees for every trade. But in 1975, when the Securities and Exchange Commission forced the industry to deregulate, Schwab created one of the first discount brokerages and pioneered a whole new way of doing business that shook Wall Street to its core. He led an investor revolution, where suddenly individuals could participate fully in the markets without costly middlemen. While clubby brokerages like Merrill Lynch raised their trading fees, Charles Schwab slashed or even eliminated his fees and offered an array of no-frills services that put the client's interests first and established the model for a new industry. Later he led the charge into electronic trading, and he continues to pioneer innovations that educate and empower investors to make their own decisions. At age 76, Chuck Schwab comes across with tremendous humility and integrity. Integrity People seem to have confidence in us, he told me.
We try to treat everyone with the sense that we are trustworthy, and we need to take care of their assets in a very cautious way. It's possible that Chuck's modesty and quiet confidence come from a life spent overcoming a series of challenges, beginning with a struggle with dyslexia a learning disability he shares with a surprising number of ultra-successful business leaders, from Richard Branson of the Virgin Group to John Chambers of Cisco Systems. Despite his reading difficulties, Chuck graduated from Stanford University and earned an MBA from Stanford Business School. He launched his career in finance in 1963 with an investment newsletter. Chuck embraced his status as a Wall Street outsider and planted his flag in his native California, establishing his brokerage firm in San Francisco in 1973. Since then, the Charles Schwab Corporation has ridden the wild bull and bear markets of the past four decades, bouncing back from the crashes of 1987, 2001, and 2008 that wiped out lesser firms. Taking on the slew of copycat companies that eroded its market share, always finding ways to innovate and grow in every environment. Although he turned over the reins as CEO in 2008, Chuck stays active in the company as its chairman and largest single shareholder. According to Forbes, Chuck Schwab has a personal fortune of $6.4 billion. With his wife and his daughter, Carrie Schwab Pomerantz. He's been incredibly involved in the family's private foundations, which support entrepreneurial organizations working in education, poverty prevention, human services, and health. He's also chairman of the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art. Chuck Schwab and I both have crazy schedules, but we were finally able to meet in his San Francisco offices just as this book was about to go to press. Here are some excerpts from that conversation. Tr. Everyone knows the name Charles Schwab. They know the institution, but most people don't really know your story. I wonder if you would just share a few highlights. I understand you started becoming interested in investing as early as 13. C.S. That's right. When I was 13, it was right after World War II, and the world wasn't too rich. My dad was a small-town lawyer in California's Sacramento Valley, and certainly our family wasn't very rich. I thought I'd be better off in life if I had more money, so I had to figure out how to make money. I talked to my dad about it, and he encouraged me to read biographies of the famous people in America, and they all seemed to do something about investing. So I said, "Man, that's for me." So when I was 13, I started a chicken company, raised chickens, and all that, and then I did a bunch of other little business kinds of things. So I knew a lot about business and started thinking about how businesses function and operate. Tr. What was your original vision? And what were your first real practical steps? Give me highlights, if you would, to give people a sense of your journey. C.S. Well, I was quite lucky early in the journey. I started out as a financial analyst, and I had some ups and downs along the way. I was about 35. And I had a lot of experience before I really started the company in 1973. And as a result, I knew some of the handicaps of the financial business, including why they didn't treat people well enough. It was because they were really focused on making themselves money, but not on giving the investor a fair shake. They always thought about their institution and making money first. I said, "Aha! There's going to be a different way." Tr. What has been the competitive advantage of Charles Schwab over the years? I mean, if you look at the size of the North American investment market, I think it's about 32 trillion dollars, and you guys have to represent a sizable amount. C.S. We're probably 5% to 10% of the retail market, something like that. But you know, as I got into business, I wanted to look at every product. Every service that we offer clients through clients' eyes, we would design a product like a no-load mutual fund. We did it in a big way. We made it free for people to buy no-load funds through us years ago. People would say, "Well, how are you going to make money at that?" So we figured out a way to make some money at it. We worked with the mutual fund companies and convinced them to pay us a little fee out of their management fees. And our clients would benefit from it, and it flourished. 
So the individual got a great advantage by buying a plethora of no-load mutual funds for no fee. We did the same kind of analysis along the way for other things that we did. We looked at it first through the client's eyes. But Wall Street did just the reverse. They always made a decision, how much money can we make on this first? Okay, let's do it. Let's go sell it, boys. That's the way they made decisions. We were completely the opposite. TR, has that shifted? Or is it still the same? CS, it's still the same. And that's why it's a pretty interesting market for us. You know, we have sort of an unlimited destiny, I think, to continue to treat the client as the king. And make sure we do everything that's in their interests first. Yes, we will make a little bit of money. Which we do, of course. We're a profit-making organization. But first, we think about the client. TR, what do you think are the two or three myths that you try to point out to them to pay attention to so they don't get sucked in when they think about investing? CS, well, it's so easy. I've watched it in Wall Street so many times. You see the abuses that come about. Some really fancy broker comes along and says, ma'am, would you like to make some money? Of course, we all say, yes. And then you get engaged in the conversation. These guys have the best widget you've ever seen in your life. And it's gonna be just like another apple. So we all, naturally, sort of listen to the story, then say, okay, I'll put some money into that. Well, the probability of that working out is about 1 in 10,000. It's like, why don't you just go to the horses? Or buy a lottery ticket that day? That'll satisfy your speculative thing. Put the real money you have into an index fund, where you know the outcome is going to be highly predictable and returns will be really quite good. TR, so many people will get hurt because they don't know things and they don't ask questions. And you're one of the first people to say, ask questions. CS, right. TR, TR, but very few people know the questions to ask. You know, they see a mutual fund and they see its return. And they think that's the return they receive. And as you and I both know, that's just not true. CS, it's just not true. It's never. Anything of the past is never promised for the future. But there are reasons why we put out a pamphlet, a white paper on index funds. We talk about the reason why stocks are the greatest place, really, to have long-term investments. And the reason why is that companies are in business to grow. Grow. Every board I've ever been on and I've done six or seven different Fortune 500 boards every conversation at the board meeting is about growth. How can we grow this company? If you don't grow, you fire the management. Get a new management team in. Now, that building over there is a beautiful building. But you come back 100 years from now. That building would still be the same size. Or be knocked down but it doesn't grow. Only companies grow. And that's why it's a fantastic thing to go to stocks. And of course, in our case, we try to encourage people to go into index funds, so they get a broad blend of industries and stocks and so forth. Then they have TR, the lowest costs. CS, the lowest costs, and they get a high degree of certainty that they're going to do as well as the index will do. And if you look at any industries over the last 100 years, they've done extraordinarily well over time and brought great returns to clients. TR, if you listen to Vanguard's Jack Bogle or somebody like David Swenson from Yale, they all say passive management is the way to go. Because 96% of all mutual funds do not match the index over a 10-year period of time. But how do you feel about it for the average investor, passive versus active? CS, well, I'm a mixed investor. I invest in a lot of individual stocks. But I have the time. I have the expertise. I have the education. But 98% of people don't focus on that. They have other things in life to do, rather than fuss around with investments as I have done, or Warren Buffett has.
You know, they are professionals, and they're doctors. Or lawyers. They're whatever. We need all those people to make a successful society. And maybe 2% of us really know about investing. So the rest of the people need some help and advice. That's what I learned early on, and that's what we do today. And the 98% should really predominantly go into index funds, in my view. They have the most predictable outcomes. Better than they would ever do by trying to pick different things, which is very difficult to do. And then do their other job too. You can't do both. TR, the other part is, people just don't realize what the cost is, as Jack Bogle points out. For every 1% over the lifetime of investing, it's 20% of your money you're giving up. CS, yeah. It's over. TR, give up 2%, that's 40%. Give up 3%, that's 60%. CS, that's a whole lot. And on an after-tax basis, it really mounts up. TR, every major investor that I spoke to talks of the fact that asset allocation is the single most important investment decision a person can make. You deal with so many different types of investors. What philosophy do you try to have your team apply to help people understand what their asset allocation should be? CS, well, it's actually pretty easy today. It wasn't that true 40 years ago. Now we have index funds that we mentioned. And ETFs. So you can get different slices of the market so you can have plenty of diversification. You want energy stocks? You can get an energy ETF. You want medical devices? You can do that. And of course, I tend to believe you should be diversified among the very biggest and 10 biggest industry groupings. And that's what you generally get in a general index fund. You get all of them because you never know. Sometimes electronic equipment will be going, zooming right up. Oil might not be doing so well. But next year? Oil is in demand, so oil prices are going up. And that does well. And so on and so forth. But it allows you to get the balance of the benefits of each of these sectors. TR, how do you feel about investing in America versus international, when you're trying to create that, that asset allocation? CS, that's another level of sophistication, which I think everybody should have in their portfolio. Some chunk devoted to international, because the very simple fact is, America is growing at about 2% to 3% per annum now. There are many other countries that are beginning to, from China to Indonesia to Japan, have better growth than America. So that's where you're gonna get your returns, where there is better growth, frankly. But even though the American economy is only growing 2%, there are some parts of our economy that are really growing quite fast. So obviously you want to be attracted to them too. TR, where do you see the world going in the next 10 years? What do you think those opportunities and challenges are for investors? CS, CS, I think there are enormous opportunities ahead of us still. Despite how slow things are going right now. It will explode once we get the kind of policies I think we'll eventually get back in. Because there's no way you're gonna take the growth component out of America. The innovation going on in this country is profound. I mean, I live in the San Francisco area, where it's just going, busting at the seams wherever you walk. It's there. TR, are we in a market bubble with the Fed controlling rates the way they are? Where you would have to take significant risk to see rewards. The market seems to be the only place for the money to go. How long does that last? CS, well, I'm not a great fan of the present policy of the Federal Reserve. I think manipulating rates as long as they have, is really not the right decision. And I guess it does create the potential and the possibility of some kind of bubble. It won't be forever. We will probably pay a price for it. But it's not a permanent issue. And so there'll be some high inflation or down markets. There will be a consequence for what we're doing now. But we'll get through it. As we do every time there are bad decisions made by policymakers.
TR, they all have a different language for it, but for every single major investor in the world, one of their competitive advantages is asymmetric risk-reward. They take a little risk to try to get a big reward. How does the average investor do that today? Is there any insight you can give them? CS, well, I think it's all coming back to the answer, where can you get the best growth? Understanding the fundamentals of growth is crucially important to get long-term returns. Now, in the case of Warren Buffett, he learned that at a young age. He just buys companies, and he never sells. Why? Companies keep growing. They just keep growing. And he gets richer and richer. TR, he doesn't pay taxes. CS, and he doesn't pay taxes. If you don't sell, you don't pay taxes. TR, that's pretty awesome. CS, that's his mystery. The myth has been solved. He doesn't sell. TR, I believe you have five children. CS, and twelve grandkids. TR, twelve grandkids. Tell me, if you could leave none of your money to your children, but you could only leave a set of investment principles and maybe a portfolio, what would be your advice to them? CS, well, I think it really starts with earning your own money. Having success in that. And the concept of putting some money aside. Make sure you get the right education. And hopefully it fits into the marketplace where jobs are being created. You've got to have a well-paying job, which are not that plentiful today. And then putting the money aside in your 401k or IRA. It takes giving up things. Not buying that car. Giving up that vacation. Having something set aside. And then you could begin doing the proper investing. It's a pretty simple formula. Lots of people don't realize it, but hopefully you can teach people to do that. TR laughs. Hopefully I can. CS, you know, I believe in leaving something. Making sure the kids are educated, but not sizable sums of money. Don't take away their sense of their own opportunity, their own ego development. Their own kinds of things that will fulfill them. You have to be a really curious person. Make sure every one of your kids is really curious. And it's not necessarily about making money. Having come from a background of no money and no wealth, I clearly know the difference. And of course, in the last 20 years, I've had the benefit of success, which allows me incredible choices. For my wife and me, we take a vacation without worrying about the cost of it. Having a good time. I enjoy my sports. I love my golf. And it goes on and on and on. And so we want to perpetuate this success. We want our next generations to have what we had, and then some. TR, you've dealt with so many successful people. You've studied successful companies and the individuals who drive their growth. What do you think is the single most important factor? CS, you know, maybe it's 99% necessity. But lots of people out there in the world really do need more resources. But they don't have the education. Somehow they didn't have the motivation. Maybe they don't sense opportunity in front of them. How to perceive the opportunity that is right there. You look around at these other guys who have been successful, and you think, I can do that too. How do you sense that? I don't know. TR, you're 76 now and you didn't find out you were dyslexic until you were in your 40s, right? CS, right. TR, a lot of people think of that as a limit on their life. How come it was never a limit to you? CS, maybe thank God that I didn't know when I was a kid. But my son was just starting school when we took him for testing and found out he was dyslexic. I said, oh my God. All the things that I had to deal with at age 7, 8, and 9, he's dealing with now. And it was very clear that I was also dyslexic, so that solved a lot of my issues when I thought back about my early schooling. The alphabet was impossible for me. My reading even to this day, I don't read novels. I read nothing but non-fiction. 
TR, wow. So what allowed you to succeed in the financial business then? CS, well, I was pretty good at math. And I was pretty good with people. I wasn't a great writer, but I had people around me who were great writers. So you learn very quickly, you can't do it all yourself. You need to have people around you who are better than you are at most other things. But you have to be able to inspire the people around you to work together for whatever your common purpose is. And that's what I've been able to do all these years. TR, what's your passion? CS, I'm totally passionate about the necessity for people to earn and save and grow because of the responsibility we all have for our own retirements. And goodness gracious, we're gonna live, you know. I'm in my 70s. But the probability now is living to 90, 95. It's a long time to be in retirement. And so you've got to put aside a lot of assets, I think, in order to live comfortably. TR, people I talked to who knew you 20 years ago say your passion is as great or greater than it ever was. CS, probably greater. Laughs. TR, wow. Why is that? How have you maintained that? How has that continued to expand? CS, well, I have seen, for instance, what you can do with philanthropy. And how you can really help people. By being successful. Successful. Well, I couldn't do it if I was not successful. I wouldn't have the resources to do it with. But I can make things happen in different ways. Whether it's issues around dyslexia. I can help kids. Or in charter schools, we can help kids. Or if it's in museums, help build better and bigger places for people to come and see and view art. I think one of the great fulfillments of achieving great success is being able to, in your lifetime, give back to things, that it really enhances many, many times, you know, what people can really enjoy, and yourself. TR, if someone was starting out brand new, what would be the advantage you would try to give them, looking to start a business? How do you go from the vision of a young man that you were who said, I want to really help people look out for the customer to building a multi-trillion dollar business? What would you tell people they should really focus on? CS, well, getting all the education and the practical experience. And then having the patience to do it day in and day out. Day in and day out. It's not easy, let me tell you that. It's like the restaurateur serving great food every meal. It's not easy. But that's how you make a great restaurant. That's how you make a great car dealership. Service every day. You can't miss the ball. You've got to hit the ball out of the park every day. With service. And the same with technology. In our lifetime, we've seen many companies go in the tank because they weren't able to innovate. Or actually, they didn't figure out a product or service that really served the customer well. They lost their customers. Never lose a customer. Figure that one out. TR, last question. I'm sure it will be 20 or 30 years from now, because you're taking care of yourself and your health, and you're so passionate, but how do you want to be remembered? What's your legacy for you and what you've built over this lifetime? CS, well, I have, a variety of them, of course. For my family and so forth. In terms of the professional side, I feel really proud about the fact that I really made a huge change to the practice of Wall Street. This is an institution that's been around for a couple hundred years. And we, this little company on the West Coast, took them on in different ways. And really made a change in the character of how they treat clients and they're doing a much better job. Not as good as we are. Laughs. But they're doing a much better job and are much more thoughtful about how they treat their clients. TR, you led by example. CS, thanks very much. TR, blessings to you. Thank you for your time. Chapter 6.12 Sir John Templeton, the greatest investor of the 20th century? Founder of Templeton Mutual Funds, philanthropist, creator of the £1 million Templeton Prize.
Sir John Templeton wasn't just one of the greatest money masters of all time, he was one of the greatest human beings who ever lived. And I had the honor of counting him as one of my mentors. His motto, how little we know, how eager to learn, guided his long and dazzling life as an investment pioneer, iconoclast, spiritual seeker, and philanthropist. Sir John was known for his ability to look at the most difficult situations in the world and find a way to take advantage of them for the greater good. John Templeton was not always known as Sir John. He came from humble beginnings in a small town in Tennessee, where he was reared to value thrift, self-sufficiency, and personal discipline. He worked his way through Yale and Oxford, and got his first job on Wall Street in 1937, in the depths of the Great Depression. He was the original contrarian, who believed in buying shares at the point of maximum pessimism. When everyone else thought the world was going to end, John thought it was the right time to invest. When everyone else thought, oh my god. These are the greatest times in history. That was when it was time to sell. He first put his theory to the test in the fall of 1939. With the depression still raging and Hitler's troops rolling into Poland at the start of World War II, John Templeton decided to take all the money he had saved and borrow some additional money as well and buy $100 worth of every stock valued at $1 or less on the New York exchanges. That portfolio became the basis of a vast personal fortune and asset management empire. He also became a pioneer in international investing. While the rest of Americans refused to look beyond U.S. borders, John was scouring the world for opportunities. And as his fortune grew, so did his commitment to giving back. In 1972 he established the world's largest annual award given to an individual, bigger than the Nobel Prize, honoring spiritual achievements. Mother Teresa was the first recipient of the Templeton Prize. His foundation also funded research in science and technology, and in 1987 Queen Elizabeth knighted him for his enormous contributions to humanity. Sir John continued to speak and write and inspire millions with his humble message of integrity, entrepreneurship and faith, right up to the time of his death in 2008 at the age of 95. Incidentally, he had accurately predicted the collapse of the housing bubble that year. The following is an excerpt from an interview I conducted with him just months before his passing. His kindness shines through in every answer, as he shares his philosophy that the same qualities that make you a great investor can also make you a great human being. TR, Sir John, most people seem to be either money-oriented or spiritually-oriented they have to be one or the other but you seem to have found a way to integrate these two in a truly natural and real way in your life. Can people integrate both in their lives? JT, definitely. There is no disparity. Would you want to deal with a businessman you could not trust? No. If a man has a reputation for not being trustworthy, people will run away from him. His business will fail. But if another man has high ethical principles, high spiritual principles, he will try to give to his customers and his employees more than they expect. If so, he will be popular. He will have more customers. He will make more profit. He will do more good in the world, and th thereby he will prosper himself, and have more friends, and be more respected. So always start out to give more than is expected from you, to treat the other person more than fairly, and that is the secret of success. Never try to take advantage of anyone or to hold anyone back in their own progress. The more you help others, the more prosperous you will be personally. TR, what was your first investment? What drew you to it and how did it turn out? JT, I was just getting started when it was the beginning of the Second World War in September 1939. We had just finished the world's greatest depression and there were many bankrupt companies. But a war causes a demand for almost every product, so during a war almost every company will prosper again. So I gave a stockbroker an order to buy $100 worth of every stock on both exchanges selling for $1 or less, and there were 104 of them. And out of those, I made a profit on 100 and lost money on only 4. 
So three years later, when my wife and I had an opportunity to take over this small practice of a retiring investment counselor, we had the savings needed to do that. We began with no clients in Radio City in New York and worked there for 25 years, continuing to save 50 cents out of every dollar so that we could build up our assets for our retirement and for charity. TR, wow. And you got quite a bit of a return saving 50 cents out of every dollar, Sir John. Most people today would say that's impossible. I can't save 50% of my money and invest it. But that's how you built from nothing, and you did this during the depression. I've also read that if someone invested $100,000 with you, in 1940, never put another dime in, and forgot about the money, by 1999, that would have been worth $55 million. Is that the accurate number? JT, yes, provided they reinvested their distributions. TR, let me ask about your investing philosophy. In the past, you've said to me, not only do you buy at maximum pessimism, but you want to sell at the peak of optimism. Is that correct? JT, that's correct. There's a good saying there, Tony. Bear markets start on the time of pessimism. They rise on the time of skepticism. They mature on the time of optimism, and they end on the time of euphoria. That always happens in every bull market, and it helps you determine where you are. If you just talk with enough investors to find their psychology, you can tell whether the market is still safe at a low level or high at a dangerous level. TR, what do you think is the single biggest mistake investors make? JT, the great majority of people do not build up any wealth, because they do not practice the self-discipline of saving some of their income every month. But beyond that, once you've saved that money, then you have to invest it wisely in good bargains, and it's not easy. It's very rare for any one person, particularly any one person working in just their spare time, to select the right investments. Any more than you would want to be your own medical doctor or your own lawyer, it's not wise to try to be your own investment manager. It's better to find the best professionals, the wisest security analysts to help you. TR, when I was talking to some of your associates down in the Bahamas, I was asking them, what does he invest in? And they said, anything. He'll buy a tree if he thinks he can get a good deal on it. Then I said, how long will he hang on to it? And they said, forever. Basically until it's worth more. Sir John, how long do you hang on to an investment before you know to let it go? How do you know if you've made a mistake? A mistake. How do you know when it's time to actually liquidate? JT, that is one of the most important questions. Many people will say, I know when to buy, but I don't know when to sell. But over these 54 years that I've been helping investors, I think I have the answer, and that is, you sell an asset only when you think you have found a different asset that's a 50% better bargain. You search all the time for a bargain, and then you look at what you now own. If there's something in your present list that is a 50% less good bargain than the one you found, you sell the old one and buy the new one. But even then, you're not right all the time. TR, Sir John, why should Americans feel good about investing outside their own country? JT, think about this, if our job is to find the best opportunities, surely we will find more opportunities if we do not limit ourselves to just any one nation. Likewise, perhaps we will find better opportunities if we are able to look everywhere rather than just one nation. But most important is that it does reduce your risk because every nation has bear markets. Usually twice every 12 years, there's a severe bear market in a major nation, but they do not occur at the same time. So if you are diversified, having your assets in many nations, you do not have to suffer through the bear market in one nation as a person who had all of his eggs in one basket would. We have always advised our investors to be diversified not only diversified into more than one corporation and diversified into more than one industry, but also diversified into more than one nation in order that they will get greater safety and greater potential profit. TR, what do you think it is that has separated you from all the other investors out there? What's made you one of the greatest investors of all time? JT, thank you. I do not regard myself as that. 
we've not always been right. No one is, but we have tried to be a little better than the other competitors, and to give more than is expected from us and always to try to improve our methods, to use new methods in order to stay ahead of the competition. If there's any secret in it at all it is this, do not try to be a go-getter. Try to be a go-giver. TR, Sir John, there's so much fear out there today on so many levels of society. How do we deal with fear? JT, to overcome fear, the best thing is to be overwhelmingly grateful. If you wake up each morning and think of five new things for which you're overwhelmingly grateful, you're not likely to be fearful, you're likely to radiate your optimism, your attitude of gratitude, you're likely to do things in a better way, draw more people to you. So I would think an attitude of gratitude will prevent a life of fear. TR, I would love to hear through your own perception, who is Sir John Templeton? What is your life really about? In the end, how do you want to be remembered? JT, I am a student, always trying to learn. I am a sinner. All of us are. I try to be better day by day, and particularly I try to keep asking myself, what are the purposes of God? Why did God create the universe? What does God expect of his children here? And the closest you can come in just a few words is, he expects us to grow spiritually. He gives us trials and tribulations just like you have examinations in school, because it may help you to grow into a greater soul than you would have otherwise. So life is a challenge. Life is an adventure. It's a marvelous, exciting adventure. All of us should do the very best we can as long as the Lord allows us to be on this planet. Sections Section 7 Just do it, enjoy it, and share it. Chapter 7.1 The future is brighter than you think. The point of living is to believe the best is yet to come. Peter Ustinov Why do most people pursue wealth? It's because they're after a greater quality of life. And one thing I know beyond a shadow of a doubt is that anybody can deal with a tough today if he or she feels certain that tomorrow has greater promise. We all need a compelling future. So if you're wondering why we would take time to talk about the future and technological breakthroughs in a financial book, it's because technology is a hidden asset that every day is compounding its capacity to enrich your life. There are breakthroughs occurring today and in the months and short years to come that will revolutionize the quality of your life and the lives of everyone else on earth. This tide of technology will offer the opportunity for all boats to rise. And in financial terms, you know what's really great? The cost of technology is decreasing while its capacity is geometrically expanding. What does that mean for you? It means that even if you start building wealth late in life, you will likely still have a great quality of life in the future, for even less money than you might think. Also, learning about these trends and technologies can awaken you to some of the greatest investment opportunities of your lifetime. These technologies are growing exponentially. The time to pay attention to them is right now. My hope is that this chapter will also inspire you to take greater care of yourself and your family, not only financially, but also perhaps physically as well. Without physical health, there is no wealth. Being around long enough to take advantage of some of these huge advances in technology should be a priority especially after you hear about some of the changes that are unfolding as we speak. So let's take a brief journey together and explore the cutting edge of our technological future. I'll say in advance, this chapter takes an unabashedly positive view. But it's not just based on my enthusiasm, but rather reflects the work of some of the greatest scientists on the face of the earth. Not those who just predict, but those who deliver what they predict. Individuals who have done everything from decode the human genome, to design the first digital voice recognition system, to develop commercial space shuttles that fly people back and forth to the International Space Station. Now, I acknowledge that many people have a different, more skeptical view of technology and perhaps they'll be right. Some look into the future and see a Terminator-style dystopia of killer robots and genetic genetically altered frankenfoods. 
Others look forward to a world of flying cars, like they had in the Jetsons, or Android helpers, like Star Wars's C-3PO, or meat and vegetables that can be grown from single cells to feed the world's hungry. None of these extreme scenarios has come to pass yet. I choose to look at how technology will be used to make a massive difference in the quality of our lives. I also understand that people often fear new technologies and worry that we're going too fast. After all, there has always been a dark side to these advances often because these technologies initially put people out of jobs until they adapt to new forms of employment. As Stephen Ratner, the influential financier and columnist, pointed out in the New York Times, even Queen Elizabeth I of England refused to patent a 16th-century knitting machine.